welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Gary, I'm a sexaholic. Uh, please join me in the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help, thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Uh, The topic of the meeting is recovery from same-sex lust. And uh, I'm going to start out, and again, my name's Gary, and I I am a sexaholic. At... uh, by the end of my acting out, uh, I was 42 years old, and I'd been uh, with prostitutes uh, in bathhouses, at, uh, acting out in public places in daytime, at nighttime, uh, cruising in all sorts of public places. And uh, I think I'd pretty much experienced everything I could in as many countries as I could possibly afford to get to. Uh, acted out all over the United States, Mexico, Western Europe. And uh, I'm convinced that I'm a sexaholic. I, I absolutely could not stop. Uh, there are people in this program who thought I could never stop. I, was, I attended meetings for six years and couldn't stop. My first exposure to uh, any kind of sexual activity was was when I was molested as a child. I was molested on three separate occasions each time by a different older boy. From that point on, I was masturbating uncontrollably until it progressed to the point that I just described to you. But before that, I uh, I just had feelings that I was different. And I was told later in life that what that means is that, that means that you're gay. Um... I also had a very difficult time connecting with, with anyone, with my parents, my brothers and sisters, relatives, neighborhood kids. Uh, it seemed to be very easy for me to attach myself sometimes just to uh, my sisters or to my mother. But, uh, you know, as I look back on all of that, I don't think that uh, some of the conclusions that people were forcing on me are, are necessarily true. Because as I've worked the steps in the context of this fellowship, I found that, you know, heterosexual people have the same feelings in some cases. Not in all, but in some cases. I don't necessarily have to interpret my feelings as a child before or after I was molested as necessarily meaning I, my sexuality was set in any one direction. I think my experience has certainly pointed me in a certain direction. But my from sexually addictive behavior, 
and the essay program is working. You know, I've had enough sex in this life to last ten men for all of their lives. I don't need to have sex again. And the expression we use, sex is optional, and I believe it is. If I'm willing to give up or surrender sex, it seems that what I get back in the exchange is I get God in the exchange. It really has led me to what I've wanted all my life today. And I believe that the instrument that God used to bring place where I am today is the Fellowship of Sexaholics Anonymous, the sobriety definition that says that, uh, you know, for us, for sex, for sexaholics, we don't have sex with ourselves, we don't have sex outside of a marriage to a member of the opposite sex, and uh, we work on a progressive victory over lust. That, that's working for me today. And I'm just, I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful for the literature and the steps. There's something that took place with doing the first step and admitting not only what I had done sexually, but also what I felt like inside to a group of heterosexual sexaholics. And then going on to work the steps first with my sponsor and then in in making amends to other people, it, it just broke down some of the, the barriers between me and other people that were erected by my fear of them. You know, it's just, today I can speak very frankly with my father. He he had some, uh, well, he has a leaky heart valve and his health has deteriorated drastically in the last few weeks. I was able to talk with him frankly about how I felt about him, which I've done before, but for the first time we talked about his dying. And uh, I couldn't have done that before. Before I just walk around smiling, say, can't, can't you see I'm okay? I'm smiling. But we got to speak honestly and frankly about how he felt about the family, uh, what he anticipated in, at least to some degree, in dying and, and leaving this life, and how I felt about him, and how he felt about me. Um, I've noticed that there's a lot less fear in my vocation. That's not to say that that it's all gone, but uh, there's there's a tremendous freedom at my work to uh, be honest about what I'm willing to do, and uh, there's a lack of fear of taking on new challenges. But I think what I've seen is that for me, recovery isn't linked necessarily to my having lusted and acted out with, with men, members of my own gender. That recovery is it's the same for everybody. That uh, I have to admit that I've made a complete mess of my life and there's some real specific ways I did that and there's some specific actions I can take to get out of the mess I'm in. And it seems to me that that's the same for everybody. And the more that I'm at ease with, you know, just being Gary, and the more that I'm honestly relating to other men especially, I see that there isn't that much difference, and I feel a closeness to men that I've never felt before. If I never have sex, I can say this today, it may not be true tomorrow morning, but today, if I never have sex again, and what I get back is 
an awareness of the presence of God in my life, and a closeness to other people, I'm I'm a winner. I just uh, that's big. Basically, what recovery looks like to me. Uh, we have two other members on the panel, and I'm going to turn it over to Nancy. Thanks, Gary. My name's Nancy. I'm a sexaholic. I'm so grateful to be in recovery today. Um, my sobriety date is January 30th of 99. Um, I came into the program in the fall of 93. So I've been here a while and I did a lot of slipping, but I'm very grateful to be here sober today in recovery today. Um, I definitely qualify to be in this program as well as to be at this particular meeting. Um, I've had a lot of acting out with self, acted out with women, also acted out with men. My uh, earliest acting out experience was with other girls in the neighborhood. Um, This was before I entered school. I don't know if the groundwork for that was laid um, from incest in the family by both um, male and female. But that part doesn't matter, just like Gary was sharing. Today, in my recovery, I focus on my attitude, my reaction, my working the steps. I don't point fingers fingers backwards. My earliest experiences were with women, with girls. Um, Through school, I was pretty shy. Um, I grew up uh, with strong religious views, and so I wasn't very promiscuous outwardly, um, but there was a lot of sex with self, and many and many and varied forms that there was a lot of sex with self. I I am married um, to a man. Uh, I got married early. I was very frightened by my attraction to other men. So what I did was chose to develop friendships with women, and I thought that was okay um, because I figured that way I was safe, I wouldn't act out with other men, and I would keep my marriage vows. Um, Little did I know, I walked into um, what turned out to be an eight-year affair with a woman. Um, I absolutely loved it because I'm a sexaholic. I hated it because it destroyed my relationship with my higher power. I couldn't stop because I'm a sexaholic. Um, I'm very grateful. I'm so very grateful to have found this program of recovery. There are other S addiction groups. This is the one I need. I need one that has a bottom line sobriety definition that is clear. I need one that the people in my fellowship will support me in also choosing that same bottom line sobriety definition. I know that I can have no form of sex with self, and that can be many and varied, and that's how I share it in my group. I know that I can have no sex with anyone outside of my marriage. Uh, my husband, as a relation, as a, as a result of the affair that I had, um, has chosen to stay married 
but at this point has chosen not to have physical contact. Um, and like Gary was sharing, I have come to accept, I used to absolutely hate the words in our book that say sex is optional. I hated reading those. But sex is truly optional. And recovery without sex is is a God-given gift. My relationship with my higher power as a result of this program, as a result of working the steps, as a result of a close relationship with a sponsor has been restored and has been has been given back to me in a way I never ever could have imagined. I still have an awful lot of work to do in terms of trusting um, women in particular because of my experiences with women and acting out with women. I do want to share from my weakness uh, an experience that I had walking right into this conference. As soon as I walked into the hotel, I was greeted with a barrage of triggers in the forms of other women. I don't know what conference they were attending. I don't know why they were here. But the dress of women in the lobby really bothered me. And so immediately, as I've been taught, I turned it over. I'm powerless over lust. I believe in a higher power. I can turn my will and my life over to that higher power. And then there was one in particular that walked by, and I chose to take a second look. And that's the image that today has been stamped into my mind. I don't have any of the other images. I turned them over immediately. But the one that I took a second look at, um, that image is still there. I have also chosen with that one to turn it over. I am powerless over that image. And if that image chooses to replace, to replay itself, I'll have to do the same thing. Turn it over. I'm powerless over this. It makes me insane. I believe in a higher power. And that higher power can relieve me from my insanity. Uh, I would plead with those of you that are in this room and with the fellowship to continue to uphold the sobriety definition and to continue to help me maintain um, what I consider a good, safe place to recover uh, as someone who struggles with same-sex lust. This fellowship has been that place for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell. I'm going to let them talk. My name is Fenner, and I'm a sexaholic. It's good to be here, and I'm learning a lot from these two. Uh, uh, I I have some similarities with both of them. Uh, I came into SA in 1984, and uh, <clears throat> I stopped having sex with men. I think it was about a year or a year and a half into SA, and it was a wrenching struggle. It was very, very difficult to stop. But I had several things that were giving me an impetus to stop. One was that I never could manage a relationship more than a year and three or four months or something like that, and they always seemed to work out poorly. Uh, number two was I'd found out before I even heard of SA or knew that it existed, that I was HIV infected. And uh, 
I was terrified. And on the one hand, I wanted a boyfriend, somebody to see me through my dying days, because in those days, people were getting sick and dying very quickly. And on the other hand, I thought, how can I do anything that might spread this virus? And then a lot of people were saying, well, you know, we're all probably infected. And I ended up in a relationship after entering SA that I just could not give it up. It was too compelling. And he said, well, I'm probably infected too. And we, we tried to do safer sex, but it really basically my neuroses, my sexaholism, all the insecurities that came from being a premature kid and being labeled a faggot and a sissy in grade school, all that stuff was right there with me as an adult suddenly faced with the biggest, scariest thing in my life, HIV. And uh, I'm so glad that I found SA. It has been the best thing that ever happened to me. The sobriety definition is the best thing that ever happened to me. When I first came in, that ambiguity about, you know, spouse, I was thinking to myself, okay, God, I'm going to be good for a month or two or three months, but then you better give me a boyfriend. And I was like very demanding and up. said, I need one. I deserve one. I was really a sick person at that time. I had engaged in compulsive shoplifting of pornography since junior high school. I was so ashamed of my homosexual feelings, and it was just not expected in my family. And so anyway, I, that pornography, uh, peeping time, uh, sex in bathrooms and dirty bookstores, but I considered myself better and not a sex addict because I was also able to have relationships and you know, boyfriends, and so I had stayed in denial for way too long, but the HIV was a big wake-up call. Um, the steps had been really crucial to me recovering. I had to say, okay, I give it up. I love sex more than life itself, I thought, but then when I realized my life was on the line and I had really played hell, you know, I had to, I got the willingness to stop, uh, I mean, eventually got the willingness. It did involve taking custody of my mind and my eyes. It did involve uh, getting rid of enormous pornography collection that I had risked my career on. I had a membership in the D.C. bar at the time, and I was shoplifting porno- pornography if I didn't have the money to buy it. I, I, can, I can be very sneaky. That's, but fortunately, the sneakiness and the lust has been lifted to a great degree. Um, anyway, uh, one of the miracles of this program, and I shared this at an earlier meeting today that I was um, sharing with, that I have been happier because of the sobriety definition and because of the 12 steps and because of doing the ninth step. It, it, knowing that I was infected and knowing that I would get AIDS, which I do have now, than I ever was before, where I had this desperate secret where I could never talk about all these feelings. I mean, you know, None of the, in my law, in law school, I was president of the class and people didn't realize that I had this whole other life of compulsive acting out in bathrooms 30 miles away. So, um, I don't want to focus anymore on the, uh, problem, but I just, I definitely qualify. I'm, as Gary said, I'm deeply ingrained as a sexaholic and, uh, God has given me wonderful freedom in this program and one of the things that's been so helpful about getting some distance from this homosexual-fueled fires of lust was that as I've gotten sober and stayed sober and re- resisted looking at men that I found attracted, 
attractive is suddenly and by surprise is I felt blessed and affirmed in my masculinity by other people that were healthy heterosexual feelings that started happening and I'm like going whoa this is like I, I had those feelings when I was you know 14 but I hadn't remembered them uh, it's, I still have homosexual feelings and heterosexual feelings yesterday the guy I came out here with he and I were in a car rental place and this very attractive female with young woman was helping us and I was just like wow you sure are pretty and I thought boy I'm recovering you know God help thank you Lord uh, and because uh, it did when I when I look at women and find them attractive and when I am sexually attracted to them it doesn't come from the same place for me there's a there's some there's envy for me and other components and self-pity in my homosexual feelings it's not there with women but then a very attractive man came out, and I went, okay, I still need to work the program. Now I look at this guy, and I'll pray for him. Some of the things that have helped me get sober in situations like Nancy described coming to this conference is, is not only praying for that person, but praying for all the people that feel lonely or all the people that are feeling whatever feeling it is. I said, God, you know, I know there's five people in the world that are struggling with this fetish that's coming up to my mind, this temptation that... In spite of all the other temptations that have mostly they subsided so much that I don't even recognize them anymore, but there's one little fetish that wants to come back. It still has its claws in me, and I'm going to try to do Roy's uh, plan for another look at lust recovery to help with that, but uh, it's going to be very difficult to talk about that fetish, though, and I'll spare you from it now. But uh, I try to pray for the people that are also dealing with the same thing right then and there right in the heat of it when I could look up and and fantasize I go into that prayer so it helps me to not just pray for myself or the other person but to pray for other people and for God's will and it's a true as it's true in this program and it can't be repeated enough so you got to pray in the morning you got to pray in the morning I got I should say it this way I got to pray in the morning I got to get on my knees and pray and uh, because I'm retired now, because of my health, it's easier for me to pray. But uh, I need it all the more because I do face some scary things. God has really blessed me. And, and it's not only a miracle that I'm still alive, as I said before. It's a miracle that I'm happier. It's a miracle that he could lift this consuming passion in my life. And it's all been about the 12 steps. If I had gone into those, I have gone to other 12-step programs that deal with the S problem. If I'd gotten into that loosey-goosey stuff, if I had said, okay, I am going to be good, and suddenly I'm going to really develop the mature capacity to develop intimacy with another man, it just doesn't, it's, it, it was never going to happen for me that I could really make a lifelong commitment to another man or another man to me. And this program, praise God, was the one that I found first because I would have gone for the easier, softer way had I known it was out there. But I found SA, and I can never be sufficiently grateful. Thanks, Senator. Uh, my name is Gary again. Um, one of the things that happened when I was, uh, gosh, maybe five and a half, six years sober, is that through one of my sisters, I was reunited with people I went to high school with. And uh, I went to a funeral. Um, 
and one of the guys that gave one of the eulogies saw me, and he was a guy that he he had four or five brothers. They're all super athletes, and uh, I knew this guy, but I didn't. I just thought he hated me. He came up to me, threw his arms around me, crying. He goes, "God, Gary, I'm glad you were here." Hadn't seen him in 30 years. And I thought, what's that? And I kept having those experiences, going to reunions or at Christmas time, seeing people and have them say, this one girl said, Gary, I wish I'd asked you to go to this thing instead of, she named the guy that she asked to go to this deal. And I thought, you mean she liked me? And my perceptions were wrong. They were just wrong. I was wrong about what I was thinking other people thought of me. But I went ahead and based my life on those perceptions. You know what I, what I'd like to do is, um, we could, uh, field questions because Nancy and Fenner know the answers. <laughs> and, uh, I know what they know so I can hand the microphone off to the one that knows the answer to your question. Um, but if, you know, we have we have some time. We have about 35 minutes or even more. So if you want to make a comment, it'll be on a tape. Um, or if you want to ask a question, um, you know, if we can't respond to it, maybe someone, you know, in the group can. But would someone like to ask a question or make a statement? I need to warn you... Uh, I went to seminary and I can talk for hours. <laughs> I saw that hand. And Don. My name is Dan. I'm a sex addict. Hi, Dan. I went to seminary too, but I, I won't talk for hours. Um, I, um, okay, that, that was very Dan, could you ask a question or make a statement? Okay, so yeah, I can make a statement. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've been in the program a long time and I was sober for like seven years and lost it. And just, it was a, con a continual pattern of slipping along the line of bathrooms and those different kinds of things. And I went to work with a therapist and you know, I thought I'd put mom and dad behind me. And he just really wanted to take a look at that. And I think, I think it's the right thing to do. I really need to look at where I've come from, you know, and they helped me make me what I am. And I think their need, well, for me, I really need to look at that, and it's extraordinarily painful. And, you know, um, one of the things he said is maybe you just need to be depressed for a while, and I'm depressed. I'm really quite depressed, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be depressed, And because part of the process of moving through the grief is depression before you get to acceptance, and, and that's okay, and that's what I'm here for, is to just be supported as I go through that, and agree with everything you guys have said. Um, I'm not that different than any of the other guys. I really believed I was, you know, and therefore I acted like I was. And uh, I'm just really coming to see myself as a man among men and uh, the burden for the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Jack. I'm Jack. I'm a Jack. Um, Oh, here we go. Look at that. Okay. Um, one of the things that I'm very grateful for, uh, because of SA and the steps and, and the relationship that I also have received from my higher power as a result of surrendering the lust and the sex and all that stuff, 
is that uh, I can have relationships with uh, men and boys, women and children, uh, women and girls, and with God that that admit of intimacy. It's so healthy feeling for me to be able to be in a room, you know, in my office. I went to seminary too. Uh, is there pills now? Okay. And uh, to be able to sit across from somebody who was formerly, who would formerly have been a real trigger, and to not have to be triggered, and to not have to relate to that person as a face, as physical features, but as another human being. One of the things that has marked my life has been body envy. I mean, that's really uh, an incredible part of, uh, of my story. Uh, I was never satisfied. I was never, uh, I never felt like other guys looked on the outside. And, uh, and so that led to years of false perceptions. Unfortunately, I organized my life around those false perceptions. And today I don't have to do that. Today I, you know, most of the people in the program where I uh, am recovering uh, are guys who've had all kinds of, of sexual acting out as part of their history, but for the most part, uh, there are people who are primarily, uh, you know, nearly exclusively attracted to to women. Uh, I guess uh, some people in society call them heterosexuals. I've never met a heterosexual called themselves heterosexuals, but uh, they're just regular people, you know, as everybody in this room is too. But it's nice to be able to just be able to relate to men as a man and to not begin to immediately think, shouldn't we be taking our clothes off? Or shouldn't I begin to have a fantasy here about some kind of a relationship? And I can have a fantasy uh, about a relationship with another man uh, at a moment's notice about anybody. And it can just sort of enter in. And because of the tools of this program and because of the practice of, of working those tools, I know that I do not have to keep that inside my head. I do not have to churn it around and kind of take that look in and begin to fantasize about that, I can give it away to somebody. Um, and that is a wonderful, wonderful gift of this program. Um, I, I struggled throughout many years of my life about my orientation. I always said, what, you know, I, I never really, I never felt comfortable identifying with people who call themselves gay. Now, that doesn't mean I wasn't hanging out with people who were calling themselves gay. It doesn't mean that I didn't entertain that self-identification for many, many years and certainly acted as if I were embracing that. Uh, but you know, I remember as a boy having girlfriends and wanting to do things sexual with them and competing with other boys for their affection. And, and so it was a real kind of a, you know, where am I in this? And one of the things that I am taking, uh, I'm learning in this program is that you know, I, I can put that issue away. You know, I'm not gay. I'm not straight. I'm Jack. Child of God. Uh, struggling, growing, a good human being. Uh, who has a history of acting out with males. But who also has a history that's much richer than that. Uh, I used to define my history by those activity. I do not do that any longer. And I 
can say it's because of this program. I remember the time sitting in a room with 17, mostly uh, people who were straight, uh, giving them my first step and not wanting to disclose to anybody in that room of all of the shameful, awful, perverted things that I had ever done, but I did it. And boy, the shame went right out of all that stuff that very night. And all they said to me after I finished was, thanks, Jack. Mm -hmm. And so I have friends in the program and uh, people that I can help work their programs, people who help me work my program. And, and so the whole issue of that orientation, my fundamental orientation is to the God of my understanding. And that's enough for me. Thanks. I feel a sermon coming on. Do you want to you want to take the snake down? No, my name my name is Gary. Tom. Come on, it's yours. Hi, I'm Tom, sexaholic. Um, yes, um, wanted to ask uh, some uh, feedback from uh, Fenner and anyone else who had that same kind of experience. Uh, yeah, all my life, um, uh, I was acting out with, uh, men, young boys, teenagers, and, um, uh, although at, um, uh, at one point I dated a girl, and, uh, you know, I was sexually aroused with that, and, uh, but then I went away to the seminar. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, 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 no. But, but all my years, you know, and I, you know, I was dealing with, um, my homosexual behavior and orientation. And then, you know, and then I got in recovery and, um, been in the program since 87. Um, and, um, right now I have three years of sobriety. I had eight years and, uh, lost that. Two years lost that. Um, but now I have three years. And so I've been around the rooms. And, um, and, uh, pretty good recovery in my own eyes and a good relationship with God. Now, about six months ago, you know, I'm driving down the road, coming home from a meeting and there's a girl, a woman bending over, you know, and I'm thinking, well, women are safe in my, my relationships and my thing. And all of a sudden, second, third look. Holy shit. I'm saying, I said, <laughs> but I'm saying, all of a sudden I realize that lust is lust is lust. What do you do now all of a sudden, you know, that that's happening? And I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure. That's why I need to ask for some feedback from anyone else. Has anyone else gone through this? Uh, maybe, now it's my own reflection, but I'm not even sure. That's why I need some, this is a good opportunity to do that. The more recovery we get, the more, um, can't quite put it in words, uh, at peace with myself as a person and, uh, and, uh, recovery and all of that. Maybe some of this other stuff is coming up. I don't know. So I just would appreciate any, uh, feedback with that. Thank you. Okay. I'll just say something briefly and then go ahead. Uh, my name is Fenner and I'm a sexaholic. Uh, one of the things that I was 
blessed after I came into SA and got sober. And when I surrendered, God started blessing me. Now, of course, in my way, I wanted the real blessing would have been heal the HIV, Lord. But he blessed me in other ways where he put people in my life in this program and in uh, spiritual programs where they prayed into my anxiety and my deep-seated abandonment fears. And I went through some of the, some of it, I haven't gone through it all, of just facing what my childhood was like, much of which I didn't remember. But I think just praying about specifically, you know, I am so anxious or I am so caught up in self-hatred or self-loathing or low self-esteem. I really identified with what Jack said about this envy towards other people and their looks. As I connected more and more to that and went into it with prayer, not only by myself, but with other people, that's really freed me up to for the big surprise of having heterosexual feelings. And as I say, I haven't, I have them and I'm not surprised by them anymore. But I still have the homosexual feelings, and so I, I don't know what's going on. But in any case, I'm committed to being celibate for the rest of my life. Yeah, this is Gary. I'm a sexaholic. Um, for me, any I believe that the root of my problem is self-centeredness. And uh, any time that I'm relating to another human being in a self-centered way, in other words, I'm trying to you know, take something to myself from this other person that I don't I have no right to take. I you know, I'm out of bounds. And and the most obvious way that I could do that would be lust. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. I you know, it's the same thing. I, I absolutely have to have God's help. Because I have no defense against that. I have none. And if I don't if God doesn't intervene, I'm cooked. And I've proven that. I mean, I, I slipped for six years. It's just a horrible, horrible slipper. Um, I, I don't know if we're answering your question, Tom, but are we getting close to it or? Okay. Okay. I, uh, think that, uh, looking at, at my relationship to my parents, has borne a lot of fruit. Um, for years and years and years, I, I paid thousands of dollars for therapy to, to sort some of those things out. And uh, what happened to me when I got sober was I was told that I had to write an inventory and I had to write down everything I was angry about. And as I listed my parents, there were some things that it was very clear in my mind that I was very angry about. And uh, what I didn't like was that the book told me I had to see what my part was in all of that. What What is it in me that allowed me to resent my parents over those issues? And once that was identified, I had to ask God to remove it. And then I had to go to my parents. My mother was dead. She she died a long time ago. She never saw me sober. And uh, that's probably the only regret I have in recovery is that I never got to talk to my mother um, from recovery. But I was able to talk to my dad and 
I got sober on September, well, my first sober day was September 18th. By Christmas, I was making amends, in other words, working the ninth step. I drove to my father's for Christmas, and I was there to make amends. And I had already begun to to show up at family things, just be there and not not insult anybody, um, not be sarcastic, just to be there. But now it was time to make amends to my father, and I, I kept trying to find that time where I could do it. I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. The last day I was there, he had just gotten dressed, and I was in his bedroom. I sat down on his bed and asked him if I could talk to him. And he sat down on the same edge of the bed that I was on, and we talked for a few minutes. And I told him that. Uh, well, that I had disappointed him. I knew I had disappointed him as a son. And he said, yes, you have disappointed me. And when he said that, I felt like I was physically transported about 5,000 miles out into the, into space and I stayed there for a long time. And I, I thought, what is this? And a few days later I realized that, um, Things had begun to normalize between me and my father, and I could no longer blame him. It was very clear to me, he was no longer the source of my problems. It was just me. And, uh, you know, these steps really work. They're not very complicated. Very, very simple. But uh, I had to be pretty beat up before I, I was willing to you know, to do what I had to do to get to the point where I could even make amends. Um, anybody else? We we have a lot of time. Yes. I'm Mike. Michael. I'm a grateful sexaholic from Albuquerque. Um, <clears throat> if um, there was a legal a little nervous. Gay bond, as we've had in a few states, would anyone here address the issue of sobriety and being in a committed legal bond in the same, uh, in a gay relationship? I think the traditions of SA tell us that we have no opinion on outside issues. We just absolutely have none. Uh, yeah, we don't, yeah, I, I don't speak for SA, I don't know anyone who can, that's also in the traditions, and, uh, as far as I know, we have no opinion on issues that, uh, don't relate to the steps and the traditions, so. I mean, if, if anyone wants to respond to that, they're welcome to, but it's legal to masturbate in most states and we don't do it. So I don't know. I don't know what SA's position is. I know what mine is. For me, for me, um, you know, my experience of gay relationships has been so devastating. To sit with a man who is dying of AIDS and have him tell me, Gary, 
God told me that I could have a relationship with a man. So I went ahead. You know, he went ahead. He he prayed for this relationship. He found it. Um, his partner had AIDS. They both he had, the the partner died, and my friend was still alive. And he was describing the wonders of sex with a man. He said, "Gary, it's wonderful," but he he was dying from it. How? I I today I can't I don't I don't know where to put that. How can something that's wonderful cause you to die in a horrible way? I mean, he he was suffering at the time that he was trying to describe to me how wonderful the sex was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. But for me, uh I don't care what the law is. Um you know, I believe as I have turned my life and my will over to the care of a higher power that the course that I'm on is is just infinitely and it is the most precious thing in my life today is my sobriety is the number one priority in my life and uh, any other questions or anybody want to make a comment yeah yeah not only is Jack, that's the holiday. Not only is it legal to masturbate in every state of the union and every place in the world, uh, 50% of all uh, men and women who are living together are not married. They're not, they've never been to a civil or religious marriage ceremony. But, you know, I'm a sexaholic, and when I look at that, I immediately think that I took myself out of the whole context of what was right or wrong. In other words, I, as a sexaholic, I only have one choice, and that's to stop. And my own self and not self enlightenment. Enlightened self-interest. Enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little nervous about this issue, but uh, uh, you know, it's a slippery, slippery slope. And there are programs, uh, several of them, as a matter of fact, uh, that define sobriety in such a way that uh, individuals who would be in such unions, or who wanted to masturbate, or who wanted to engage in any kinds of sexual act, they can go into those programs, name their own bottom line, and I suppose live happily ever after. But this is the only program that is based on the notion that no sex with self or anyone else but the married spouse, always understood from the beginning as marriage between a man and woman. Now, that makes us peculiar. You know that? And I've heard some people say, oh, you're, you're confusing this with a religious issue. To which I respond, oh, you mean like lust? <laughs> Our program says the only uh, qualification for membership is the desire to stop lusting and to become sexually sober. Now, I know something about religion, and I can tell you where that notion comes from. It's a fundamentally religious notion, a spiritual notion. And this program has taken it over, unique among all the S programs. We're the only program that says lust is the driving force of these individuals. So, you know, they say that uh, the first three steps of the program were borrowed from other people. Steps four through ten were borrowed from the Oxford movement, which was the religious movement that attempted to go back to primitive Christianity. No, no addict gave us any of these steps. The steps did not come in addicts. 
So it's a unique program, it's a challenging program, but the sobriety definition here gives me a safe place to come and to recover. I know that I'm not going to come to a, an essay meeting and, and likely have people hit on me or welcome being hit on by me. I'm not saying that may never happen in any place at any time, but it's not likely to happen here. So I, I just think it's a question that uh, certainly intrigues many people. But uh, this is a life and death issue. And some of us, there is no other option but to stop it. I'm one of them. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Any, anybody else? There we Come on out. Come on. Come on. You're among friends. Yeah, I'll probably come across nervous because um, cause I am. Yeah. Oh, I'm David. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, I um, I don't know. I grew up very fearful of men, and uh, but I uh. I came from an alcoholic home, and I'll just share briefly what happened. Um, just my father's abuse. That's brief enough. <laughs> um, and one of the things I um, had a hard time with was um, fears of all sorts of people and what uh, other people were thinking or what they may be thinking of me. And... Um, what happened uh, was I learned in recovery, uh, or s- still learning, um, is, well, somebody told me about um, that before the lust is the fear, and f- um, fear can lead to lust, which can lead to sexual encounter, which is possession. And that hit home about, uh, like about a few days later. I started thinking about that and I was at work one time and, um, there was this, this, uh, pretty girl that came into work first day there. And, um, I started to, uh, lust after her. And I'm not bisexual, but, um, what happened was before I started lusting after her, I started uh, getting afraid of what other people would think if I didn't look at her and, and uh, think or see her as attractive. And I was afraid of them thinking of me as gay. So I possessed her in my mind sexually so that, that uh, would have, because I was uh, uh, so afraid of um, their thoughts. And um, it's like the possession kind of... Um, in a false sense, um, took away the fears of what other people may be thinking or what they might think. And um, so right out, shortly after that, like maybe a day or two later, this guy, uh, I was, worked, well, I found him real intimidating and uh, like a bully type guy. And, um, and he wasn't too far away from me, maybe about 15 feet or so. And I um, started sexually... Um, you know, fantasizing about him and lusting. I, um, I found that, uh, before that, though, there was fear of, um, of him. 
And what ha- what happened was I uh, basically uh, possessed him in my mind sexually, uh, so that way uh, it appeared that you know he couldn't hurt me if I owned him in my mind. You know, I possessed him, and so it really um, covered up my true uh, what, what was really going on, the reality. Um, so I ran away from reality in a sense in my mind. Um, but what I found was um, there was the uh, situations in my life, um, the fears I had to deal with. And what I found um, in the sexual uh, reco- uh, program um, that uh, a slogan I asked about all that stuff, you know, what do I do about these fantasies and all. Someone suggested, uh, or a couple of people uh, mentioned about embracing the fantasy. And I sounded really odd to me, Farron, instead of um, resisting the fantasy, but to embrace it. And I thought about, you know, you know, like giving it a hug or something. And then I thought, well, acceptance, you know, that to accept the fantasies going on, to accept it. So when I found was being at work and, you know, wherever, I tried using that, um, embrace the fantasy, and it worked. Um, it took the fantasy out of my head right away, and I was in the now, and I felt at peace. Um, and uh, I found that, um, you know, at that time, or I may be at work or something, and I was down the wrong aisle. I mean, it was so far off in fantasy, and when I brought my mind into the reality, and... It, uh, you know, I would have the wrong product, like, how did I pull this, you know, because I was, you know, working in a warehouse at the time, and and I just remember that so clearly when I first started using that, and uh, it works every time I work it, and one of the things I saw, how that fit in was um, embracing the fantasy, the uh, acceptance, um, I found something I read, and it was like, perfect love casts out all fear, and underneath the lust, um, I found was the fear, and that, along with all my shortcomings, is underneath it's all fear. Um, but what I found under the qualities, uh, the acceptance and all, was uh, um, well, no, was the acceptance under my qualities. But so embracing the fantasy was the acceptance, which for me was the perfect love, and that's like took it took away the um, the fantasy right away. It's like right when I Right when I um, fa- um, embraced the fantasy, it just it, right then it was like I was in reality. I was in the now, and I felt good, and I felt uh, peaceful inside. Um, and it was amazing how it worked, and I I still use it today. It's just uh, a day at a time. It's like when I don't work it, or when I don't think about using it, it don't work. And when I keep coming to program and thinking about it and other tools that this program has to offer, they work. So um, that's my food for that. Thanks. Anybody else? Great. My name is Nehemiah. I'm a sexaholic from Riverside, and by the grace of God, this wonderful program I have four months. And uh, thanks. Um, I had nine months before, and I know that that was a miracle, and I, I relapsed. Um, but I'm really thankful for the bottom line. Um, I know that it's, I need that. Um, I, I know that I do not have the capacity to 
to have a long, a lifelong commitment to a male. Um, when I was in the gay community, I never saw it, and that's what I wanted. And I'm seeing that I can have, um, if if I choose and if God wills, I can have that eventually with a woman. That's not my goal. But um, four months is very long. But I, I this is I have a question somewhere along here. Um, I think four months for me has been long enough for pride to really well up. And I think one way that it wells up is a lot of times I'll be at meetings, and I think that especially if if the if a sex an essay there has the same sex less. Uh, addiction that I do, that they want me and they're lessing after me and uh, just really getting off the focus of sobriety, which I so desperately need and which has helped me out so much. And so I'm just just sharing that just to weaken that. Um, it, was, it was a little fearful even coming to this meeting, even though I know I'm supposed to be here. Um, and then I guess my question is that I've where I'm at now, I don't like to be hugged, and I, I only feel comfortable with handshakes, and I, I'm comfortable with that. Um, every now and then someone maybe at my synagogue will give me a hug, a man. I'm not too uncomfortable with women, but um, that's, is that anything I should worry about? You know, and, and I haven't even considered letting people know that, you know, sometimes people hug me and I sort of back up, and sometimes I don't. I don't know. I don't know if that's even anything to... To worry about. Nehemiah, I just uh, bless you for your ability to be honest and to come into the program and to start getting sober so early. I know so many people have struggled for a long time before they got nine months or four months. And so we're glad you're here. And uh, I think it's healthy boundary for whatever reason to follow your gut and your instinct. And who knows? What it is, but to just say, I just, I just am a handshake person. And there's no explanation necessary. I'm just a handshake person. It's good to see you. Uh, uh. Pass this on to our second expert here. Nancy, you're on. To your second expert here. <laughs> yeah, I really like what Finner just said. There was no judgmentalism. In that statement, there was no defending. Um, you don't need to make, I, I don't need to make explanations for my boundaries. Um, when I have a gut feeling about a boundary, um, I can state it. And if somebody continues to violate that boundary, I can restate it again. I can be pleasant about it. If they continue, I can, I can start to, I mean, in my voice, get a little bit firmer. And, um, the other day, it wasn't involving a handshake, but it was another boundary issue. I was talking to my father on the phone, and I said, um, if this continues, I will need to hang up the phone. I've stated what I've requested. You are not respecting me as an adult. Um, I don't want to do that. But but the way Fenner explained, doesn't need to get to that point. You know, um, I'm a handshake person. Um, you know, good to see you. There's no judgmentalism in that at all. And there's uh, there's no need to defend your own boundaries. Thanks, Nancy. Jane. Hi, I'm James, and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, James. Well, the other S programs were brought up kind of briefly, and since I come from there, I thought I ought to share. I was in SCA for oh, about 10 years, 
and had a slip about five years ago and slipping and sliding since then. And about two years ago now, I found SA. And I find it to be very helpful to have a bottom line. The other, you're talking about hugging. You know, I, I don't have a problem hugging, but in that program, a lot of boundaries were crossed because every person had their own, their own bottom line. And I found that to be really disconcerting because I never knew when I was safe. And also, there's also a lot of subtle proselytizing, even though people did not mean to do that. But they would when, you know, I would do my share and tell them that I had a, a celibate program. And they said, hmm. And suddenly they would smile at me like, well, maybe someday, you know, you'll be enlightened and be set free. And... um this is such a deep conviction of mine that it is possible to be free of this and to be happy and joyful and and I've experienced that even in that other program. Um, so I think having a boundary, having a place where you can come and have some clarity, and I think that's what this program really brings. It It's got a real clear bottom line and a clear definition of sobriety but even more so than the other S program that I was in, is it really understands, It's I think it's closer to AA in its definition and its understanding of addiction. And I only found that in this program because it went straight to the root, which is really deeper than, than sexually acting out. It has to do with you know our affective life, our emotional life. So I just wanted to, to share that you know I'm really grateful for this program and to encourage those who are maybe having questions about it that I've experienced the other program a good a good 10 years and I find this to be a lot more clear and helpful for sobriety thank you anybody else just in response just a comment to follow up on Nehemiah's question uh, I went on a trip once with about 40 people, and uh, I noticed that there was one young lady that was always eating lunch with, and dinner with me. And after a while, I thought, boy, she's she's just stricken with me. She's just, I, don't, I can't explain it. I'm just a lady killer. And, you know, and boy, she she's here at every meal. And boy, I, I just don't understand. And then I got my explanation when she got engaged to a guy that was always sitting next to me. It wasn't me at all. You know, it had nothing to do with me. But I'm self-centered. You know, I think everything, I think everything has to do with me. You know, and it's, we can laugh about it, but it's really tragic to go through life thinking I'm the center of everybody's thoughts. And, you know, the things that are happening around me were set in motion by me. They should be controlled by me. They should serve me. Um, and it's hard to have God play a role in my life at all when I'm the center of my thoughts. And uh, it's just, that self-centeredness will kill me. Uh, is there anyone else who who needs to ask a question or make a statement? Sure. Is, is somebody having a difficulty in their recovery that they'd like to throw out to the group? Yes, come on up. Yes. Yes. 
Can I ask you first what step you're on? I'm a sexaholic. Um, uh, one of the things that helps me with that, and I had whiplash in the early days from all my radar that was out there all the time. It was very, very difficult to get it up. But not only praying for the willingness to stop doing that and assiduously doing that in the morning, but also coming to the point where I realized I was never going to have sex with all these people that I was seeing. It was, It was just like continually ha- hanging delicious fruit out there that I could never eat. And it was torturing me, and I re- got irritated. And I asked more when I realized that the, the irritation was healthy. It was irritating. Why was I giving all my power over to these images of people that I would, most of whom I would never meet or talk to, some of whom I would know and relate, they would be in meetings or, or whatever. But I was never going to have sex with them. And it it was really making me feel bad about myself. So just asking God to help me realize it. No, I don't want to give that guy power over me. I don't want that fantasy. I'm surrendering it to you. So I, it's helped me to just, it's been a big surprise that you can be free from that, that compulsive looking. Let's see if I can get this thing straight My name is Nancy, um, and I am a sexaholic, and that's the key to what I want to share. I am a sexaholic. I am going to be attracted to triggers. There are going to be things that are going to cross my path that are going to affect me, that are going... Uh, when part of my share, sometimes I say I lust and want to be lusted after um, by both men and women. I mean, that that includes a lot of people. <laughs> um one of the things my sponsor has taught me is birds are going to fly over my head all the time. I don't have to let them build a nest in my hair. They're going to be there. Um, and that's where I, where I do what I call my one, two, three waltz. And I described that earlier, what I did in the lobby of this hotel at the beginning of the conference. You know, I run through real quick, one, two, three. And then sometimes I'll shoot into a prayer. Sometimes it's praying for the object of my lust. Sometimes it's it's a serenity prayer or one of the other step prayers um, or a prayer from my own faith tradition. Uh, one thing I've heard from another member in the program is that I can't pray longer than my luster can lust. And eventually, I never think it's going to work in the beginning ever. And I don't learn. Um, you'd think I would begin to learn that... Yes, if I start saying this prayer, it will work. But no, every time I think it's not going to work. 
But I do it anyway. I start saying it. And lo and behold, I've, it does work. And I realize that that lust is not there anymore a few minutes later. And if it comes back, I can go through the same process again. And um, that's for me, that's working the steps on on these triggers that come by. That's another thing. My, my sponsor has taught me to use the word trigger not just in terms of um, something that triggers me into my addiction, but that triggers me straight up into an immediate connection with my higher power. I do not need to beat myself up over the fact that I'm a sexaholic and that by the way I'm put together, I react. Um, I remember one time I had wrecked my car and the rent, my insurance provides a rental car and they, they drove it up to me. I was so angry. It was a candy apple red sports car. Now why would they provide a car like that for a sexaholic? That's going to be a perfect thing for me to sit in and drive down the road and attract triggers. I mean, this is, when you talk about self-centered, this is what I'm thinking. Um, no, it, it's all it is is a car to drive around for a few days while my own car gets fixed. Um, I'm kind of getting off your question, but that's what I do. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Uh, did you? Okay. We need to do this pretty quick. Is it actually working? Going into a tape recorder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're on tape. Is it true? That's You're true. on tape. Um, <laughs> my name is Lawrence, and I'm from Washington. And I'm a sexaholic. Um, I came in a little late, so I uh, apologize if anything I'm about to say has um, been said before. But uh, yeah, um, I came into the program in 1988. And many of the people that were in the program at that time, I don't see around today. There's one person in this room that I remember from those days. And I came into the program um, thinking I had a sexual addiction problem, but um, that was as far as I was willing to go. And I came in while at the same time I was in something called PFLAG, which is Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, and in a in a um, homosexually oriented church and um, everybody kept telling me at these places just keep coming back you know um, and I kept coming back and I kept coming back with a vengeance and I was coming back at everyone and at the program because it, we had the truth out there but this program just didn't seem to get it you know so, you know, I, I'll get sober here, but, you know, I'm going to teach you guys what I'm learning in all these other places, because the truth is out there. And um, I, all I can say is that by, keep, by continuing to come back, I was on a daily basis humbled. And I was humbled to the point where I understood that I knew so little. I mean, it's right in our introductory statement, we realized we knew only a little. Well, I never knew just how little I knew. And um, by virtue of realizing on an increasing, on an increasing in a daily basis that I knew even little, even less than I did the day before, I kind of got quiet, and I realized that I just need to come in here, be quiet, work the steps, and more shall be revealed. 
and lo and behold, more has been revealed. And um, the only thing that of those days that is co- is in common with my life today is this program. Everything else has somehow or other been shed. I didn't find truth there. I found truth in the fact that I need to uh, maintain a relationship with a higher power that works everything else out for me in my life. And that... Um, I needed to put everything on the table, including my sexuality, my issues of sexual orientation. Every element of my life was on the table, and I was reduced to nothing but one walking surrender. And I knew that God would put back into my life those things that uh, God wanted in my life. And I have, I still wait to see what will be implanted back in. But I knew I needed to become an empty vessel because the emptiness of my previous life told me that. And um, there is a lot of wisdom to be uh, gained from continuing to come back and to not put myself into a category or into a corner, but to take my rightful place among a bunch of sexaholics, and I'm just one of them, and to, to leave it there. And I'm grateful to leave it there, and I'm, and I'm grateful that people have greater wisdom than I do, not by virtue of anything that they've done, but by virtue of them continuing to come back. So um, this meeting is always very special in the, in the conferences because people in this room have a different kind of a burden that they carry, and we know that um, we sometimes feel uniquely misunderstood among a group of people who feel, in general, misunderstood. So we're misunderstood by the people who mis- are misunderstood. Even. <laughs> and that puts us, it, that sort of feeds our, you know, feeling of specialness, and, you know, we're, we're always the asterisk somewhere. But, um, but the truth is that we're made just like everybody else. You know, we have two hands and two feet and, you know, head. And, yeah. I apologize. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for... Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Um, after a moment of silent meditation, will you please join me in uh, the serenity prayer? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.